0: Luke 23, beginning in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one, Had ever yet been laid. It was the beginning, or rather, it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So far, the reading of God's Word. And we'll pick up in the Heidelberg Catechism seeing how the Catechism summarizes these things for us of Jesus' burial. This is just part of Lord's Day 16. Uh, This is question and answer 41 and then question and answer 42. Why was he, that is Jesus, buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Question and answer 42. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Answer, our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, it's such a joy to draw near to your word and to the truths that it contains body and soul. Yet, Lord, we know that because of our sin, we can often find our judgment clouded, our understanding crippled, our hearts distracted by even good things that are behind us, among us, and in front of us. Lord, protect us from these temptations. Help us to be fully present. Help us to be fully invested in the power of your word to do its work. We're so thankful, Lord, that it never returns empty, that it is never vain, but it always accomplishes that purpose for which you appoint it. Lord, we're expectant that you have purposes in our lives, in our households, even now. And we pray that you would accomplish these things through through the ministry of your word. Wherever there is failure on my part, Lord, we pray that, that Christ would be the shepherd and that your spirit would be the power and may your truth be magnified this evening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I am not a surfer. Uh, I don't claim to be one. I did grow up in California, but I grew up a number of uh, hours away from The beach and I've been twice. Both times were terrible experiences and I would like to never go again. Um, If you do surf, then you might be familiar with uh, the place I'm about to tell you about. But even if you don't surf, I think you'll find the story interesting. Um, Off the coast of Half Moon Bay in Northern California, there's a really, really famous surf spot called Maverick's. Uh, legend tells us that it was first surfed, Mavericks was first surfed in 1961 uh, by, by a small group of guys. And I got to wondering, why is it called Mavericks? I had heard of this spot, I didn't know why it was called Mavericks. And it turns out, uh, I think this is a true story, that one of them had brought a, their dog, the dog was a German Shepherd, and the dog's name was Maverick. And when they started to paddle out to the break, um, the dog jumped in and started swimming after them. So, so the surf break got called Maverick's. Um, That's a pretty cool dog. Um, Mavericks is a fairly world-famous surf spot, and what's incredible about it is that you might imagine in your mind's eye right now the waves breaking fairly close to shore. Um, I would too, but actually the waves break half a mile offshore, about 2,500 feet from the shoreline. So it's out there. And for modern surfers to get out there, they tend to take boats or they get pulled by jet skis or something like that. Typically, they're not paddling too far out, at least anymore. It's famous because the waves get really, really big. So there's competitions there. Um, The reason the waves get big is because there's an underwater rock formation uh, off the shore. And when when the swell converges on this point, the rock formation that you cannot see causes these waves to increase and so when the swell is just right and the wind is just right you get waves that are sometimes uh, as tall as 30 feet overhead there's also sharks in the water uh, and so it's uh, not for the faint of heart anyone who's ever surfed mavericks has found themselves underwater but a a handful of really famous really capable really gifted surfers have actually died uh, surfing mavericks What's really incredible is that when their bodies recovered, they didn't have were recovered, they didn't have any major wounds. You, you would never really be able to tell that anything traumatic had happened to them, but they had nevertheless been crushed by the power of waves that were formed by unseen rock formations underwater. There's something about the awesomeness of this spot that it's pretty bewildering in its ability to bury people, its abil- ability to bury people is pretty jarring. And when you think about a natural phenomenon's ability to bury, we could think of other things besides surfing. If surfing is not your thing, we could, of course, think of um, earthquakes and fires and hurricanes. And there's a wide variety of natural forces that have the ability to bury. And when we think about power and power that we don't have... There's a tremendous gulf that is fixed between the power that we possess and the power in a natural force to to bury. But all of this power related to burial, it pales in comparison to the power that was at work to bring Jesus to his burial. The power that was at work, the perfect providence of God to bring Jesus to a place of burial as he went willingly makes something like Mavericks look a little bit like a lazy river at a vacation resort. They don't even compare. The power of God, the unseen power of God to accomplish the work of redemption, including in part the burial of Jesus Christ, makes all other powers seem a little bit like preschool. It's truly powerful. So Jesus died and Jesus was buried, but why was he buried? Why was he buried? Why wasn't he just immediately raised? Why, why go into the tomb? Well, our catechism tells us that he was buried to testify that he really died. To testify that he really died. And then it asks what, what I would submit to you is one of the most Transparent, vulnerable, personal questions in the entire catechism, and there's a, there's a lot. But then, why do I have to die? Jesus died to test. Jesus was buried to testify that He really died. But why do I have to die? If what the Bible says is true that I'm united to Christ by faith, He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Why do I have to die? It's an important question. Why do I have to be buried? And the answer is incredible because it's the moment at which we are released from the tyranny of sin. Period. And that's a good gift from a good God. So if you're anything like me, we know what it's like to hate death because we love this life. But you might also know what it's like to love death because you hate this life. My prayer is that as we look at God's word this evening, as it's summarized by our catechism, that we would see three things. That one, we could be confident in Jesus' burial, that we would be cautious in sin's burial, and that we would be comforted in our own burials. So we'd be confident in Jesus' burial, cautious in sin's burial, and comforted in our own burials. Firstly, we should be confident in Jesus' burial, One of the reasons we should be confident in Jesus' burial is because of the reliability of the claims. The reliability of the claims. The catechism says that Jesus was buried to testify that he really died. One of the reasons that should be comforting to us is because those claims are reliable. Those claims are reliable. Just for a couple of reasons, there's more, but I'll share a couple primary reasons with you that they are reliable. One, he really died. The Roman empire was very good at making sure that people died, especially through crucifixion, so they would not have messed this up. The Romans were good at crucifixion. They had perfected it over centuries. Secondly, his body did not remain on the cross. How else do we know that he was really buried? His body did not remain on the cross. Jewish law made sure of it. So we know he died because the Romans were good at it. We know that his body did not remain on the cross because Jewish law forbade it and he would not have been left there, according to Jewish law, past sundown. And the Romans had apparently made some accommodation for this practice throughout the province of Judea. Therefore, for these reasons, we know that he was not left on the cross to rot, nor was he buried in a shallow grave and eaten by wild animals, which, according to Jewish law, would have been an act of abomination and, and further impurity forced upon a dead body. Furthermore, women are mentioned in every gospel account as some of the first eyewitnesses to see the risen Christ and and, and to witness even before that to the burial of Jesus. Well, women in that time and place, as many of us know, would not be called upon as trustworthy eyewitnesses in a courtroom. So for the gospel writers to put women forward as some of the eyewitnesses to the burial and the resurrection of Jesus would be foolish unless it was true because if they were trying to fabricate account they would have chosen eyewitnesses that would be more credible more trustworthy in the eyes of their legal system lastly the resurrection of christ depends upon the burial of christ and jesus was seen by 500 people, perhaps even more after he was raised, and in order for there to be an empty tomb, there has to be an occupied tomb. So because the Romans were good at crucifixion, because the Jews would not leave a body on the cross past sundown, because of the reliability of, uh, the seeming unreliability, but the, the strange reliability of female testimony in the Gospels, and... Because Jesus was witnessed as resurrected, we can can be confident that the claims that Jesus were buried, the claim that Jesus was buried is reliable. Lastly, perhaps 1 Corinthians 15, an early confession of the church, says that as of first importance, Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. So I think I would say it this way. Um, and if, if I was speaking with one of my unbelieving friends right here, I would say it to them um, uh, respectfully. I think objections to the reality of the trustworthiness of the burial uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have less to do with the reliability of the claims and more to do with an unwillingness to accept what those claims imply, if they are true, that Jesus is the risen Lord of all men. And that speaks to the meaning of the claims. Not only are the claims reliable, but the claims mean something. Someone once said to me, the, the claim that Jesus died is not really a Christian claim. That's a historical claim, but that's not an explicitly Christian claim. But to say that Jesus died for my sins and rose for my justification, that is a Christian claim because it's a theological claim about what God did in history through the God-men that accomplished the the redemption of mankind. So the meaning of the claims... His burial testified that he really died, that the ugliness of the cross was real. It testifies that he was an obedient servant. He was obedient to death. Before the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was a crucified king. And think about this with me his work, um, as the second Adam was finished, and think about where his work ended. He rested entombed in the dark where the work of the first Adam began in a garden. That's where Jesus rested in the tomb. Think also with me about the meaning of this. He was buried as the Sabbath. The text says in Luke 23, he was buried as the Sabbath was dawning. Did you catch that? Literally about to shine. So in other words, Jesus was buried as the sun was setting, but the Sabbath was dawning. Now, of course, that is Saturday, but for us we know that there's a greater Sabbath than the Sabbath that took place on that specific calendar day. There's the eternal rest that Jesus entered into and that we enter into with him. He's the first fruits and, and he's the forerunner and the trailblazer, and we enter into that rest with him, and his burial anticipates all of this significance. This point at which God seems to be silent, yet the work of salvation is still unfolding. What's the point? The point is this. At the core of our faith, this burial of Jesus is a moment at which God seems silent and distant and the poison and wickedness of men seems to be blaring. Yet The power of God's providence, even through the cross, calls us to be confident in the claims as well as the consequences. That the power of God's providence, the unseen power of God working through invisible power to accomplish his perfect will should give us confidence that even in this specific calendar day, he was still at work even though he was silent. And that perhaps in your life, he's still at work even though he's silent, even though the power might seem distant and it might seem unseen and it might seem, we might be tempted to feel that it is unreal that says nothing, nothing about the reliability of his work that has been testified and verified in your life and in mine through so many proofs. Well, in our first point, we've seen that we can be confident in Jesus' burial because it testifies that he really died. But then the Catechism goes on in question 42. Well, why then must I die? Why then must I die? The first time I came across this question, the catechism, I I thought it was kind of an incredible question. And it's a question, honestly, I'd never asked myself before. I'd never really thought about that. Why do I have to die? But then it it got me thinking, Yo, that is actually a really, really good question. Jesus died. It seems like if if we are with him that we should sort of skip that unpleasantness uh, right on to glory. But think about with me what Romans 6.4 says. Listen to this, Paul, in Romans 6.4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, so why do we have to die? This text starts to point to it, and the catechism draws it out. We, we Die so that we would be released from the tyranny of sin. We do not die as a payment for sin. That payment has been rendered in full on the cross. It is finished. So our death, beloved, is not a payment for sin, but it is a release from sin and its tyranny of Satan and sin and the devil. And we see that in our burial. We're buried with Christ and we will be raised with Christ and even now raised to new life. In Christ. This points to a true reality that we all face that Jesus is a great Savior and sin is a great enemy. And it doesn't relent until death. Isn't that one of the most profound mysteries of the Christian life? In Christ, I'm redeemed by grace, I've died to sin, yet sin still rages. What do I do with that? I'm redeemed by grace. I've died to sin, yet sin still often gains the upper hand. What do I do with that? Well, we answer along with our forefathers. We kill it. We kill sin, but be cautious. Be cautious in sin's burial. We kill sin, but we be cautious. We be on watch about its death We'd be cautious about a couple of things. One, we'd be cautious about religious salesmen that promise us a life that is largely free from sin, maybe some sort of perfectionism. Sort of like mathematic Christianity, where if we plug in the right formula, then, then we can almost guarantee that either in us and our children, those that we know and love, that they will be, we will be free from sin. We should be cautious about that offer. But we should also be cautious of, of sort of dreary dark cloudy Christians that that seem to leave no space for growth and grace in the Christian life and growth and godliness. We should also be cautious about that. So I I would submit to you what we might call a somber sanctification. Maybe we ought to pursue a somber sanctification, which realizes that the greatest joy in life comes from knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection, but the work of that grace in your life might be a 10-year project or more in a particular area of your life. You reflect on the last decade of your life, just for example, and you think about the ways in which God has been at work to cultivate godliness in you, to strengthen your faith. And Lord willing, we would look back and say, the Lord has been so good, he's been so faithful, there's been um, so much to give Praise for there's so much work that he's done but there's still more work to do so this job doesn't really seem over this project doesn't really seem over well well that's true and that's what the catechism is pointing to that it's it's not over until our burial but we would trust along the way that God is still at work and that these projects might take some time for us to embrace the callings that he's placed on our lives For those of you who like gardening analogies, the Christian life, it's probably more like wildflowers in a mountain valley than it is like roses in a perfectly curated rose garden that are maintained by a society of people who are dedicated to their perfect display. The Christian life might be a little bit more like wildflowers in a a mountain valley where there are winds that blow and there's winters that come and there's more powerful wildlife than just gophers. Um, The Christian life might be a little bit more like that. There's dormancy and there's nevertheless flourishing beauty. Maybe the gardening analogy is not quite your thing. Maybe more of an aquatic analogy. Um, Charles Spurgeon uh, famously said that he had learned to give thanks for the ways of life that would crush him against the rock of ages. I really like that. Spurgeon said he learned to give thanks for the waves of life that would crush him against the rock of ages. That's a somber sanctification that's recognizing that the waves will come, but by faith they will crush me against one that will never fail, the rock of ages. So we trust that we have freedom from sin, both from its curse and from its power, but nevertheless we look to Christ cautiously killing sin and trusting that our approval before God is based on the imputed righteousness of Christ Not the sharpness of our sword with which we might slay the dragon of sin in our own lives, but but Christ and his sufficiencies. So we can be confident in the claims. We should be cautious in the burial of sin, but we should also be comforted in our own burial. Philippians 1.21 says that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That to die... Is gain we might say to be buried, to die is gain. I think this is really interesting um, because as a culture, it seems that we are both on, on the one hand obsessed with death and terrified with death. It seems we're both obsessed with death, but we don't have no clue how to talk about it, and so we are pretty terrified of it because we know that uh, many of our unbelieving friends know that the answers they have for. The reality of death, it is unsatisfying. So we're obsessed and terrified at the same time. I think you see this in sort of the relentless production of horror films. It seems like every year around the end of October, there is a new um, a new movie coming to the theaters that is filled with all sorts of glorifying of death. We're repulsed by them, but we're also terrified, and people keep paying money for them to be made. Um, we watch NASCAR races, if you do, for the crashes. We might tune into skiing in the Olympics for the spills. If you watch cooking shows on reality television, you've probably noticed that they never shy away from disaster recipes, but the camera zeroes in on disaster failures. What is that? Well, that's just a little bit of death in the kitchen. So whether it's on the racetrack, the ski slope, in the kitchen, the movie theater, we are a people that are obsessed with things going poorly. But we struggle to know how really to talk about it. That's one, of the other re- that's one of the reasons why we have so many euphemisms for death. Where we refer to death as passing away, resting in peace, funerals or celebrations of life, or we say just sort of in a vaguely sentimental way, he's in a better place. As Dr. Michael Horton says, we don't believe in passing away. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We don't believe in vapor or disintegration. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So Christians, as Christians, we can face death. We can face our own burials knowing that death is is actually an incredible liberation though it is surrounded by sorrow rightfully so it's an incredible liberation from the tyranny of sin and the curse of sin and the, and the power of sin this sin that has infected the ground and thorns fight back and it and it hurts to have babies and and work is hard and the ground's infected and and burial death is release from these things. I remember as a 12-year-old boy, um, if I'm honest with you, not really wanting Jesus to come back because there was things that I wanted to do in life. I remember going to summer camps, to Christian camps, and the speaker there would talk about the hope of the resurrection and how Christians could have confidence in death. And I remember thinking, yes, that sounds great, but first, um, there are some things I would like to do in life. I wanted to get my driver's license. I wanted to get married. I wanted to be an adult. And I remember thinking to myself and being ridden with guilt because of this, Jesus, couldn't you just wait for a few more years? There's some things that I I would like to experience in this life. Well, beloved, there's something human in that, but there's also something deeply fallen in that. In our, in our Book of Forms and Prayers, I would encourage you at, at another time to turn to the section called The Consolation of the Sick. If you've never read through it, it's incredibly, incredibly helpful. It's a series of uh, doctrinal summaries of the Christian faith that are intended to be shared with those who are nearing death or plagued by sickness. And there's a series of statements at the ends, uh, just passages from Scripture that are organized to provide comfort to those who are facing terrible sickness or, or near death. And, and one of the sections in the Consolation of the Sick has to do with the very thing that I was struggling with at 12 years old, which was whether or not our appetite is more for this world or for the world to come. And it speaks to the, the hunger for glory that, that Christians ought to have. I would commend it to you. Commend it to myself. I didn't want to face the end of this life. But friends, to face burial at the end of this life is to face the end of sin's tyranny. Perhaps I thought too highly of myself. Perhaps I thought too little of my sin. I think of my grandfather also, who died a couple years ago, and at the end of his life, all he wanted to think about, all he wanted to talk about was seeing Jesus, thinking about what heaven would be like, thinking about what it would be like to have no more pain and no more sickness. That's all he wanted to talk about. And and, and that um, rattles around in my brain whenever I think about my hunger for more of this life weighing heavier in the balance than my hunger for Christ and to see him and to be with him, despite the fact that sorrows come through death, but to be free of sin. What a gift. We've been buried with Christ. And we've been raised with Christ. And all of this is by faith. And as surely as he has conquered death and he's overcome the grave and he's made it his footstool so surely will his people. He leads them through the flood. He leads them through the Red Sea. He leads them through Sheol and Hades and death and disease and affliction and sets them on solid ground. Something more solid than this life. So the the sun, the sun might be setting in your life, and, and that, that applies to you whether you're young, old, or somewhere in the middle. The sun might be setting on your life, we don't know, but it might be setting nonetheless. And we all, nevertheless, we all have parts of our life in which death seems to be victorious. But, but remember Luke 23 54, it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was dawning. So Jesus goes into the earth, and the Sabbath is rising. Rest. Is dawning through disease, through too little, through too much, frustration with others, conflict. Jesus is the steadfast anchor of your soul. Your life is in Him, you belong to Him, body and soul. He's faithful, death is His enemy. It is a great enemy, but, but, the, the, but the Bible says that it's actually the greatest enemy and it's the most ultimate enemy and it's the last one that's going to be destroyed before he puts all things under his feet. And he puts sin, he does this, he puts sin and suffering to work for the good of his people. You will not be ashamed in your burial. And though you die, you will live if you find your life in Christ. Mavericks, that famous surf spot, it buries surfers alive because unseen rock formations drive waves to soaring heights. They're unseen. No one can see them. No one has ever seen them, but but they are there. And, and one day, when you're buried and one day when I'm buried, it might look like the wind and the waves caused it. It might look like disease caused it. It might look like old age caused it. It might look like a wreck caused it. But the fatherly hand of God will order all of it. And when you emerge from from those waters, it will no longer be with the corruption of this age, but with the renewal and renovation and freedom of the age to come. In our burials, we truly live. We're we're. Buried alive. we Buried to live. Remember the words of Psalm 16, and we'll close with this, beloved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Spoken of Christ, And in union with him, we find hope in this psalm for ourselves as well. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you for what they reveal about our deepest loyalties. Father, if we're honest, we often find the things of this world to be Our deepest pleasure, Father, free us from free us from from captivity to too many good things. Free us from slavery to sin. Free us from loyalty to fleeting power in this life. Power of our hands. Power of institutions. Power to crush, power to create, power to manipulate. Father, free us from these things and and help us to trust that your power in our lives is satisfying. It is sufficient. It is all we need. And, and, And as we look forward, Lord, to the age to come, help us not to do it with sorrow for what will be left behind, but with joy for all that is ahead. Lord, we think especially of those in our lives who are most clearly near death. God, be a comforter to them. Holy Spirit, be strength for them. And help us, Lord, if if death is going to come quickly, yet we do not see it, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to live in in fearful yet joyful anticipation, reverent anticipation of, of what you have for us. The days, the weeks, months, and even years ahead, as we see your hand at work in our lives, Father, help us to trust in you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.